Welcome to another edition of Market Impact Insights, your podcast source for business leadership perspectives to help your business grow. Hear from experts in marketing, sales, business strategy, and more with practical advice for business success. Make sure you won't miss the latest episodes by visiting marketimpactnow.com. Now, here's your host, Dan Albaum. Welcome back, everyone, to another great episode of Market Impact Insights. If you're an enterprise and looking to have sustainable growth, successful selling, of course, is the lifeblood of your organization and being able to achieve those objectives. And selling today is hard, and it really is evolving and taking new approaches. And we're going to dive into that. What is successful selling all about? What is the innovation? What is the breakthrough uh, that is available for any organization seeking growth? And then also, what kind of leadership do we need to bring to be able to drive that kind of enterprise growth? And we're going to talk with a true, passionate expert. Jamie Shanks is the founder and CEO of Sales for Life. That's the largest social selling training solution for enterprise companies. He's also the CEO of Pipeline Signals, and that's helping sales teams focus on revenue instead of just research. Jamie has trained more than a thousand sales professionals from Fortune 500 companies, as well as solopreneurs. He's trained people at very successful organizations, Microsoft, Thomson Reuters, Oracle, American Airlines, Intel, a lot of big players there. He's also an accomplished author, two books, Social Selling Mastery and Spear Selling, Jamie has been a pioneer in social and digital sales. He also provides ongoing executive guidance and operational excellence that contributes to the growth of both customers and firms around the world. Jamie, welcome to Market Impact Insights. Well, that was a mouthful. Thank you so much for the introduction. So I, I want to go back looking at your bio, your, your track record of success and Explore a bit what originally sparked your own personal passion in this whole area of sales excellence and social selling. Well, I was a vice president of sales at a SaaS software company here in Toronto, Canada, and I was 30 or early 30s. And I was part of this revolution that was called Sales 2.0. So the beginnings of content marketing to drive inflow. This is when Aaron Ross writes the book, Predictable Revenue, where now teams were building inside sales teams, SDRs and BDRs. And I helped this company called Firmex go from zero to $3 million ARR. I was first sales employee and I was feeling really good about myself. And I said, you know, I want to be able to help other Toronto-based businesses, other SaaS companies, professional services companies, in Toronto, understand that prospecting has changed at that time. And so I hung out a shingle and I said I was going to start a coaching and consulting company. And two years later, I was nearly bankrupt and had very few customers because I was a jack of all trades expert of nothing. And, you know, the, the concept of building an inside sales team at that time was still very new and nuanced. And I then was fortunate enough to stumble into seeing around a corner, which was that this thing called LinkedIn was going to be really pervasive for business development. And I started doing hacks. 
uh, at night trying to figure out how to reverse engineer it to use it for prospecting. And I built the very first training curriculum on that topic and called it social selling. So um, I kind of, to answer your question directly, I stumbled into it. I just wanted to help my fellow seller. I didn't realize I was building a training company. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, in in our lives, how some of the uh, most monumental uh, shifts or paths, they're, they're not always um, well-organized or pre-planned. It's just, it's the, it's the really just, you know, sometimes random events, the right timing at the right place. And you really picked up on something in terms of just this networking effect and, and what it could mean for sales. Yeah, and, and exactly as you just mentioned, there was no plan. There was no rhyme or reason. And I was very fortunate that one of the sales plays that I helped create, which is nothing new to sales, but was new with the advent of a tool like LinkedIn to reverse engineer a social network to be able to identify what we call the, the sphere of influence. So the sphere of influence was really simple. Imagine taking your LinkedIn profile. I could open up your contacts and reverse engineer the top three to five companies that you knew the best based on social proximity of all your relationships. I could track every company in the world. And if somebody left my customer and moved to a prospect, I could follow that human capital. I could follow my fans. And so it was through this lens I called the sphere of influence that when I won my first customer with Sales for Life, I revert, I literally drew on a sheet of paper their the company's logo, mm-hmm. circled mm-hmm. it, and drew spider webs around it. And then asked a simple question: who cares about the story of my one customer called Vision Critical? It's a market research firm in Toronto. Who cares about that story? And I thought, well, what about the people that used to work there? Well, what about the people that I work with at Vision Critical? Who do they know? And within the course of 18 months, every time I'd win a customer, I would do this exercise. And I jumped from a local Toronto business to eventually winning ADP, Thomson Reuters, and Oracle. And within 18 months, they deployed social selling mastery training to 50,000 sellers um, over five-year horizon. It was like 50,000 people because they even deployed it within non-sellers within five years through Oracle. And it became the largest social selling program in the world. And that was not not by design. It was literally just a process of which I was prospecting. Wow. Exponential impact. And, you know, today it is just so hard. It's so challenging. It's so competitive out there, especially when we're thinking about selling successfully into enterprises. Jimmy, what are some of the things that are making it a bit more harder or complex than even 10 or 15, 20 years ago? Well, I think if we, there, you can almost break it down to macro and microeconomics, so to speak. But I'll, I'll speak from a chief revenues perspective. Let me kind of pontificate of where things have changed. So as mentioned, 10, 15 years ago, Aaron Ross and this idea of predictable revenue comes out where Salesforce is the very first company to really capitalize on this idea of looking at human capital activity. So what a seller does every day, and then started breaking down that activity into $5 an hour tasks versus $500 an hour value creation. And they recognized that a lot of what an account executive was doing was list building and prospecting, but then they also had to do demos and proposals and close deals. 
So they segmented the roles, thus the invention of the SDR and BDR function. So now you had young, lower paid resources, cold calling and or emailing at that time to book meetings on behalf of a more senior person, an account mm -hmm. executive, who would take the deal from sales qualification, do the demo, work the deal, buying consensus proposal and win the deals. That was fantastic because the delta of our labor arbitrage between the SDR and the AE was like three to five times. So now you're buying back all this time, money and energy. And over the years, the SDR function got more and more and more expensive to the point now where you're paying, you know, your inside sales team, your SDR team, nearly what you would have paid account executive. Like it, it's gotten so bloated. And so what's happened recently with the economic climate is companies are forgoing their SDR team. They're, the percentage of quota attainment that the SDRs were giving to these AEs, you know, they were only booking maybe 10 or 20 or 30% of the total amount of sales qualified leads that that AE would need to hit quota attainment. So thus the AE was doing two jobs. The AE is doing the AE job, but then they also have to self-source, you know, could be 50% or 75% of their sales quota themselves because the tailwind behind them of the SDR wasn't enough. So the biggest challenge now is you have account executives who live on an island, they are self-sourcing or self-generating, yet they're, I'm 44 years old, they're my age, they haven't prospected in mm -hmm. 10 years, they've lost the art and science of prospecting, yet they are now the future of your pipeline as an organization. So to answer your question, the biggest challenge is all the time, money, and energy was been spent on marketing campaigns and demand generation campaigns to yield 10, 20, 30% of the total sales qualified leads necessary to fuel your whole business. And you've been leaving your account executives on islands to fill the rest. And mm -hmm. that quota gap has grown larger and larger and larger every year to the point where the AEs are even struggling to hit sales quota and they're almost the complaint. I don't have time to also prospect this much because you put so much pressure on me. I have to do all of this. So the future is, is uh, a tough one uh, for those account executives who are full cycle self-sourcing AEs. I hope that answered your question. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's a, it's a whole, it's definitely there. I know we're going to dive in. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about some potential uh, solutions or tools and, and help to, to address that. But one aspect of, of the opportunity in sales comes back to relationships. I talk a lot about the power of relationships in my book, The Impact Makers, from a exceptional leadership perspective, uh, the importance of relationships. But from a, a sales process and sales outcomes, Jamie, can you talk a little bit about the keys of how to effectively transform relationships into successful outcomes. Yeah. If you were to look at how doors are opened, you come to recognize that companies don't make decisions. Like I'm, I'm drinking, you can hear I have a bit of a head cold. I'm drinking out of a Yeti water bottle and the corporation Yeti doesn't get out of bed every day and say, what new projects and initiatives should I work on? No, it's the people that work within that business. 
And so human beings are the ones that bring priorities into a company. They accelerate priorities up the ladder or they walk out the door with priorities intact, leaving gaping holes. So why don't you spend your energy following the people? And what you come to recognize is one of the best door openers are when one or two scenarios happen. A new executive joins a company and that executive came from one of your customers. They're a champion. They're a fan. And what are they going to do? They're going to bring in people, process, technology that they love. That's where you have an asymmetric competitive advantage. Option two, new executive goes into a new business. When they get there, they are most malleable to change because from day, say, 30 to day 100, they have to think through all the new people, process, technology that they're going to bring into the business to shake it up, to make change, because that's why they were hired. But by day 100, they'll have to present that plan, be given a budget, and then start deploying against that remitted budget. So now they're in the action of executing against that plan. But in day 30 through 100, they're really open to new ideas. So the reason I mentioned this is from a process standpoint, rather than calling A through Z in a phone book or calling accounts based on revenue size or you know, uh, number of employees or number of restaurant chains, or whatever you want to use as an arbitrary uh, metric, how about you use objective data to tell you who's most likely to open a door and who's not? And a signal like human capital migration is a massive opener and opportunity. So that's where we'll get our customers to focus on campaigns that they know have a greater probability of opening doors. Yeah, they say timing is everything. And so just being able to intentionally track the people movement and then that window of opportunity, say day 30 to 100, where there's a mindset that's very open to considering new options, it, just, it makes total sense in terms of uh, really making it a bit easier to be able to go in and have your message be heard. Yeah, and there's other forms of these compelling events, these signals as we call them. There's people raising their hands every day called buying intent who are on your website, downloading key, key assets. There are, as an example, companies that are buying one piece to a puzzle. And if you could track the products that they use, uh, and if you have a natural integration of that product, it's called product usage. You are the other piece to puzzles. There are those that are doing M&A readiness or IPO readiness. So what you're, you as a seller are looking for these clues, triangulating these signals and deciding the most important piece to prospecting, which is account selection and account prioritization. If you can't master that, doesn't matter how great your message is, doesn't matter how great your product is. If you're aiming your message at the wrong accounts at the wrong time, doors won't open for you. So we want to focus in on doors that are most likely to open at the right times as the first order of operation of focus. Mm -hmm. Now, a little bit earlier, you were talking about the reverse engineering on LinkedIn. We're starting to get a little bit into this area of social selling, social selling, social media. We hear a lot about that, social networks. Can you break down a little more specifically what is social selling? Yeah, and actually, one of the best ways to define it is to also think of the juxtaposition 
a juxtaposition against social media marketing. And that's where they get confused. So social media marketing, think of it as fishing with a net. So I, as a team, will blanket an area with a net and any lead capture, any, you know, so imagine I'm sharing content socially. I might even be doing paid media against a geography, a vertical or set of named accounts and anything, any fish that come in the boat, some are going to be minnows to sharks, to turtles, to you just like you start then narrowing down and picking through your lead, your inbound lead flow to decide, you know, which leads am I going to call first because they meet my ideal, ideal customer profile. Social selling is fishing with a spear and you are going out in the deeper water. You are being very intentional about who you're targeting. And this is more of a one-to-one action. And social selling is doing the same process you do in an analog world. So you're looking at triggers and insights and competitive intelligence. You're just doing this in a digital way, but you're using social media information and digital assets to be able to uh, plan accounts, engage accounts in a way that you were doing in the past with email and the phone. You're just now using other tools like LinkedIn and Twitter and so forth as one of your new communication mediums, but it's very account-based. And and are you finding that from a mindset or a skills standpoint, for a salesperson that it's, it's taking kind of a new, uh, or it's requiring a new set of, uh, of just guidelines or criteria for success. Is it, is it's a mindset shift, isn't it? Just a little bit. It, it's traditional? two parts. Yeah. So the first part you need to unlock is help the seller understand that the process of account-based selling has been around forever and that social selling is not an additive process. You're not creating a whole new methodology. You're basically digitizing the very process that you do every day, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, to be successful. Once they get through that mental unlock, they go, oh my God, you're just making it faster, cheaper, easier for me to A, acquire information, B, engage customers. Then in part two is the tactical skill-based training on Okay, you you remember how you were trying to figure out what's important to a customer? Do you know that on this website with a couple keyword strokes, you could uh, grab a Form 10K and read their and get their SWOT analysis of that company? Or with a click of a button, I can tell you everyone who's changed jobs in the last 90 days or who's posting jobs for a company so you know who they're hiring. So all of a sudden, the seller has the ability to acquire information to make informed decisions that they never had before. And they can also go beyond, well, my only mediums of communication used to be phone and email. Now I've got these social platforms. I've got WhatsApp. I could even make a video within my messages. I've got all these new ways to entice customers. Yeah, I love that. It's enhancing intelligence uh, all behind that. Now, shifting gears just a little bit, because you are the CEO of a couple of companies, you are in a leadership role and you're thinking about performance optimization. I know all the time. What, in your opinion, 
separates truly exceptional leadership from just good enough? In my opinion, uh, this is a learned skill. I would say that I, um, being a great CEO is not my, my acumen. I didn't wake up a great CEO. I think that I am very transparent and I would say the part that has helped me grow businesses is especially as I started moving towards using the EOS model, which is, you know, the entrepreneur operating system. Uh, we, my business partners and I uh, do a level 10 meeting every day or every Friday. And so that means that we're reviewing the core rocks, the big juicy things that we need to accomplish every quarter. And then every Monday, we're relaying that information in our companies back to the teammates and we're reviewing how we're doing against those rocks. And the company as a whole only has, you know, four to seven rocks every quarter. Meaning like if you were to not do anything else in the business, these four to seven things, you know, move the ball 10 yards. And you just keep doing that every quarter, every quarter, year after year. And there's this concept that you completely underestimate what you, you completely overestimate what you could do in a year, but you completely underestimate what you do in 10. And the best advice I was ever given is if you just keep accomplishing those rocks every quarter, you'll wake up three years, five years, 10 years later, and it'll baffle you how far you've moved the ball. And it won't feel like you did, but it's because you just concentrated on the most important things. Mm -hmm. You executed mm -hmm. every quarter against them. And you were consistent about doing it. And so yeah. we are radically transparent. Like our teammates know what's in the bank account. They, they know every rock, why we're, we talk about the rocks every week. Wow. It's consistency. It's prioritization. I mean, it's really foundational, but it's just that uh, consistent, relentless focus on what's truly important. Seems seems simple, right? But a lot of companies really struggle with that. A lot of companies, I think, get caught in actions and activities. You do things for doing its sake, but you don't back up and say, if I could only do a few things in the next 90 days, I would just do these. And I've even read books about you know, Peter Thiel, who, you know, he talked about like the one thing. And if you even tried to have a conversation about anything other than that one thing, he would, you know, dismiss you or change the subject and say, no, no, we're only here to talk about the one thing. Yeah. It's having worked in a lot of global organizations, you know, just from my own personal experience, there's this constant threat of scope creep of just just continuously incremental let's add something else to the list and can our teams do more and here's the next great idea and then the one idea stacks on top of another and pretty soon again you have teams that are either overworked they're burnt out they're stressed they're not delivering at an exceptional level they're just kind of trying to check the boxes and it's just it's hard it, it's as hard to uh or probably harder to decide what not to do than it is to commit to just doing the next thing. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that saying no is actually one of the hardest parts about being an entrepreneur because you always feel you don't know. Most of the time, 
nine out of 10 things you don't know how to do, or you don't know very well. And you're inventing, it feels like you're inventing along the journey and stake. I call it stakeholders, meaning employees, vendors, customers, prospects, investors, you're going to get approached every day with a new idea. And, and naturally the entrepreneur in you is going to say, yes, like, oh man, I can't pass up opportunities because you feel like if you say no, doors are just going to slam in your face. And you, you get this sense like they'll never open up ever again. But then you said to 14 yes, yeses and your calendar, you no longer control. You say like, oh my God, like I just wanted to go from point A to point B in the next 90 days, but now I'm off to point K. I don't even know how I'm going there right now. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think we can all relate to that. Now you've been a founder of multiple companies as you reflect back on your experience, what's been some of the learning that you've taken from that? Anything that maybe you weren't expecting, but that you've really been able to take and carry forward with you? I would say something that I'm working on being much more mindful on. I've started a third company, so I actually own a third called Get Leverage. I have found that when I was first part of Sales for Life, I hung too much opinion on other people's or too much stock in other people's opinion. And whether they were potential investors or they were potential acquirers or mentors, I I let people kind of dictate A, where they thought I should take the business, or B, you know, their point of view. And I had always had this dream of owning a portfolio of businesses. But people will tell you, don't you you can't do that. You're not focusing on one thing. You can't build the next unicorn, so to speak. And if you're not working on something that's truly large, why are you working on it at all? And I I think I, you know, of the 10 years I owned Sales for Life, I feel like half of it was spent chasing other people's dreams, not my own. And so when I set forth to creating Pipeline Signals, I was doing something intentional for a couple of reasons. I was trying to prove to myself and to others, um, more importantly, myself, that I can create another business. Because did I create lightning in a bottle with Sales for Life? Was Did I capture a market or a topic called social selling that was really hot for a period of time, but I'm not actually a great inventor of things or runner of companies. I'm just a guy who found this lightning in a bottle. And then I created a third. And, and so I'm constantly trying to prove to myself that what one of my uh, entrepreneur friends calls drive-by advice, don't listen to about 99% of other people's advice because it's called drive-by advice, meaning mm-hmm. they are not spending day-to-day with you. They don't know your true goals and ambitions. They don't see where you're trying to drive the ball to. So from an outsider... They might look at owning multiple companies and say, you're absolutely nuts because you're spreading yourself too thin. You're not going to get to where you're going. But for all they know, I'm trying to follow the Randolph Hirsch model, which he created one business and he would develop a network within an an ideal customer profile. And then he would build derivative businesses to serve that same buyer. 
you know, the outsider doesn't know that. And so they just look at it as somebody who's trying to do multiple things at the same time. So uh, I guess the, the drive-by advice thing has been big as I've matured, not listen, listen to your gut and your gut is most likely going to be right. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And there's certainly, uh, when you're in a high profile position, you maybe you're in a high growth uh, mode, you're doing a lot of innovation, that noise is always going to be there, isn't there, right? Because it's not like you can always control the gate of when the, quote, helpful advice comes your way. It's just going to be offered. People are motivated. They want to comment. They want to, they, they want to suggest. They want to try to get some engagement with you you know, as the CEO. And, and so it's going to keep coming, but it's really that self-discipline to kind of filter out appropriately and not get distracted by it. You, you will get way more advice than, there's this saying, ask for money, you get advice, ask for advice, you get money. But it's amazing how easy people will flip advice, right? Um, I've got advice from for years from people that have never actually founded their own company, never, never started a business. Now they were employees and they were successful at other businesses, or maybe they've run one business and they had a mega home run, but they haven't run multiple businesses. So they'll tell you it can't be done. Well, maybe it can't be done for you, but you've never done it multiple times. So how do you know? Right. Right. So um, again, drive by advice. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jamie, I know you're always looking ahead. And when you think about the future, what's making you optimistic? Um, that there's unsolvable problems. <laughs> so if you if you look at the two buyer personas I serve, so I serve the chief revenue officer and their sales organization, specifically um, in two ways. One, it uh, sales for life serves the, what's called the sales enablement function, the learning and development function. My company Pipeline Signals serves the sales leaders and their account executives. This, the world of sales will never be perfect. It will, there are things to be fixed, but it will, it's an unsolvable problem. And then in my third company, Get Leverage, where we help uh, enable and teach founders and CEOs how to overcome you know, the murky waters of offshoring, and then we help them find offshore talent. Again, fa- uh, companies are always going to have margin erosion. They're always going to f- be, uh, be in a pickle on profits. They're always going to feel like they're spending too much on their human capital costs. And it's an unsolvable problem. Uh, we're just there to help them um, be able to identify talent that creates a much greater competitive advantage for them. Uh, but again, uh, that, that these are forever problems. These are businesses that I can run conceivably for the rest of my life. And so that's what makes me optimistic. They're not, um, I didn't invent the next widget, you know, the, the, the next pet rock. And it's like in, it's going to have a meteoric or, or a, a meteoric rise and fall. You know, I'm working on lifelong problems. Mm-hmm. Well, as we wind up the conversation, Jamie, do you have any other final advice for leaders that are looking to take sales performance to the next level? I would. Um, one of the big 
things to be focused in on right now. Um, and I'll try to summarize this fairly quickly. Look at your go-to-market. And most likely you have, I want you to think of something called total utility and marginal utility. Every time you keep buying up all these tools to create leads in marketing and demand generation, you're increasing what's called the total utility, the incremental costs of every one of these tools. But the marginal utility is the rate of return, the, the sales qualified leads that it's actually getting you. And it starts to look like a bell curve. It starts to curl down and you start getting into all these tools and they have a diminishing return. You're trying to get to 100% of your lead flow coming magically from the inbound. You keep spending wildly tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars going into sales or going into marketing and demand generation to only chip away at the problem of the percentage of sales qualified leads you're actually getting fueling your account executives. But that then begs the question, what are you doing with these account executives? They're living on an island. They have very little technology given to them. They need skills and they need up-leveling. And so I would say to the chief revenue officer, turn back on those account executives and help them. Stop fueling the beast that is marketing and demand generation with endless tools and campaigns. And start thinking about how you get 5% better in every one of your account executives. And that will have meaningful impact to your business. Timely advice. And in this world of a plethora of the latest shining object in terms of marketing demand generation tools, <laughs> Jamie, I can relate to what you're saying because it's overwhelming and I'm a professional marketer and I'm overwhelmed. And so we've got to make smart decisions of invest in your people that are out there on the front lines um, to build those relationships and to get sales to another level. So thanks again for joining, uh, enlightening us a bit more around social selling and the true impact that can be made in organizations around the world. Thank you so much for the invite. And a reminder, everyone, please continue to give the gift of feedback. You can go out and rate and review this podcast. We want to continue to bring you the best content and to make this better. You can go out and do that on all the major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcast and Spotify. And as always, make sure to visit marketimpactnow.com for the latest in business leadership perspectives. So long until next time.